been working through Mark a little bit. Are any of y'all bumper sticker people? You have bumper stickers on the back of your car? You don't have any on the back of your car. A couple of people put bumper stickers on the back of their cars. I actually don't for several reasons. These are some that I've seen that it's hard to find bumper stickers that are appropriate to put up on the screen in church. Um, they say something. Some people, it's their achievement or their... It's where they've been on vacation or it's some, it's a lot of times they're political. I think some people see it just as an opportunity to kind of state their opinion without a whole lot of repercussions. It's kind of like, you know, Facebook or something. You just kind of blast your status and there's no, this whole thing here. Some, some school started with, we want to honor our honor students. We want to publicly say the, you know, and it just, it went downhill from there. I mean, you've got all kinds of, Takeoffs on some school that just thought this would be a great way to showcase our kids who are doing well in school. But ultimately for me, the, the issue with bumper stickers is they're permanent. You can't take them off your car. This guy, he's not reselling that. He went all in. And he bet on the wrong horse. And it's just unfortunate. <laughs> so... To me, bumpers, if they were magnets, I could maybe get a little more into them because that way I could change. But there's just too much commitment with the sticker. I had a question. We're going to look today at, really, it's Jesus' bumper sticker. It's his message, what he came to do, condensed in about eight words. And I don't know what you would say that would be if this was Bible trivia. And I said, tell me, what's Jesus' bumper? You know, if you had something about forgiveness or the love of God or you tried to condense John 3.16 into 10 words or what you would say. But he, there was a theme and at the beginning of, of his ministry, he says, this is what I'm going to talk about. That's kind of what they tell you if you're ever in a public speaking environment. They say, you tell them what you're going to say and then you say it and then you tell them what you just said. And that's what Jesus is doing. This is what I'm coming to talk to you about. And that's what we want to look at today. What's this message that he came to bring And how does he expect us to respond? So Mark 1, starting in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the bumper sticker. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. That's Matthew's version. Just Again, it's seven or eight words. And that's that's what Jesus came to say, he didn't come to say, if you come to me, I'll forgive you of your sins. That's a part, but that's not the big, that's not the bumper sticker. That's not the big heading. He didn't come to say, you know, if you, if you follow me, you'll have this type of eternal life. That's a part of it, but that's not what he came to say. What he came to say is, there's good news, and it's that the kingdom of God is near. Now that idea of kingdom, we don't understand. We don't live in a kingdom. We don't have a king. And to talk about that, for most of us, what we think is, well, a kingdom is a country where there's a king. It's, we can look on a map and we can find a kingdom. And it's got, a, it's got lines drawn around it. And it's this geographical entity, this geographical reality. When you hear the phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they, they mean the same thing. When you hear those or see those in the Bible, not what's, what, what the Bible is talking about. Not talking about a geographical Entity. If that's the case, when you hear kingdom of God, you're either going to think the church is the kingdom of God, and it's not, or heaven is the kingdom of God, and it's not. Either way, it's going to remove you 
from the kingdom of God. It's either this little thing right here, or it's up in heaven and we'll get there someday. The kingdom of God is the rule or the reign of God. It's an abstract concept. It can be a little difficult to get our hands around. In Matthew 6.10, when Jesus is praying the Lord's Prayer, He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. He's making an equivalence there. The kingdom of God and the will of God being done. Those, those are the same things. So if you were to say, well, where is the kingdom of God? Where I can't see it. Where is it? One answer is everywhere the will of God is being done, that is an expression of the kingdom of God. So everywhere God's will is being done, whether that's in your life, in particular relationships, in our community, everywhere you see, hey, that's the will of God being done. That's There's peace being promoted, righteousness being promoted, justice being promoted, love being promoted. There's reconciliation happening. Everywhere you see those things that you know, hey, that's the kingdom of God, whether it's done by Christians or not. Everywhere you see the kingdom of, everywhere you see the will of God being done, you can say, hey, that's an expression or a manifestation of the kingdom of God. Again, don't think in terms of countries or don't think in terms of geography. Think in terms of rule and reign and especially God's will being done. Let me see if I can paint a picture. So the first king of Israel was Saul and he started out fine and pretty quick into his reign. He went sideways and, um, He started rebelling against the Lord. And so Samuel, who's the prophet, at this point, the way things worked is God spoke to a prophet. And Samuel was the top of the food chain in terms of prophets. And then that prophet relayed this message from God to the people. And so at this point, Saul's the first king. It was Samuel's job to anoint the king, to let everybody know, hey, this is the guy that God has chosen to be the king. There wasn't this, it wasn't succession in terms of your sons and all of that. Saul's the first one, and so Samuel anointed him as king, and that was the signal to everybody, hey, this is the guy God has chosen. But anyway, so Saul rebels against the Lord, and this is um, 1 Samuel fifteen twenty six. Samuel said to him, that's to, to Saul, you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. So this is private. From what we can tell, this is a, a one-on-one, personal, private conversation where Samuel the prophet is saying to Saul the king, you're out. God is removing his favor from you. You are no longer his king. But you need to realize nothing changed externally. Saul still sat on the throne. There wasn't a castle, but if there was a castle, he's still sitting there. He still has all the military, all the civic, all the political authority in Israel. As far as everyone is concerned, Saul's still the king. Everyone except God. That is. So after um, a few days of Samuel kind of moping around, God says to him, hey, you need to go find the next guy. So he goes to a guy's house named Jesse. Jesse has eight sons. He brings the first seven sons to him. And God says, no, 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 no. Is there any more? Yeah, there's this one named David. So they go to David. And God says, he's it. And so Samuel anoints David. This is First Samuel 16. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So what you have, again, this is, this is a family-only thing. From what we can tell, the only people there are David's immediate family. So Saul has been rejected in private, and David has been anointed or chosen in private. The thing with the oil, we don't get that, but that was symbolic. So the prophet Samuel pouring oil on David's head, that was the symbol. Hey, you're the guy. That was symbolic of God pouring his spirit upon David, saying, you're the guy who I want 
to be the king. All of this is private. Nothing changes. David's still a shepherd. He's still the youngest kid in his house. His brothers still treat him poorly. All of that stuff is still going on. Then things begin to change. Because David has God's favor upon his life, he starts to do some things like kill Goliath. And so his public profile starts to elevate. People start to take notice of him. Saul, because he's a broken man, gets jealous of David. He tries to kill him several times. It doesn't work. And so he drives David away, chases him like a dog into the wilderness. So we have the, the, the one who is the king, according to God's standards, living in a cave, and the one who's been rejected, according to God's standards, living in the castle. So everybody in Israel still sees Saul as the king. David's done some great stuff, but he must have messed up because Saul ran him out of the castle. And then this is First uh, Samuel 22. David left Gath, that was a foreign country, escaped to the cave of Agilom when his brothers and his father's household heard about it. They went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. This is what I want you to see. This is where we live right now. This is, the, this is the, a, a metaphor for how we live un, with Jesus as our king. So David is the rightful king from God's perspective. Very little, I would say hardly anything, has changed in terms of circumstances. Actually, since he became the king, things have gotten worse for him. He's now living in a cave. He spends 10 years moving in the desert from cave to cave, trying to evade Saul, who's trying to kill him. And about 400 guys, the cream of the crop of society, we see those in distress, those who are in debt and discontented, all go to him. So he has 400 men. I don't know if there are any women or children who are saying, you're our guy. We're following you. You're our king. You're our leader. So you can see there, that's the beginnings of the kingdom of David. He has. There's no geography there. You can't find it on a map because it moves. He's running for his life for 10 years. But what you have is a group of people who are saying, we're following you, and you have an air, you have situations where David's will is being done, not Saul's. What Saul wants is for David to be killed. And these guys have rejected the rule of Saul. We're not following you anymore. We're not serving you anymore. You're not our king. We're not living under your authority. And have said to David, we are following you. We are serving you. We are living under your authority. Saul, your will is not being done in our life. David, your will is being done in our life. It's the beginnings of the kingdom of David. That's where we live right now. Jesus is the king. He's not just the king of heaven. He's the king of this earth. You read the newspaper, that is not apparent. It's not just that people seem to uh, dishonor or disrespect him. They, they do things completely counter to everything we know he cares about. It's not that he's just neglected and ignored. He's actively opposed. And we look at that and we say, how in the world can anybody say Jesus is the king. He just needs to blow the thing up and start over. But that's what the Bible said. Jesus is the king. That's the good news. The kingdom of God has come near, is at hand, is close by. Because Jesus was bringing this kingdom to the earth. We live on this side of Easter, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So for us, it's not that the kingdom of God is near, it's the kingdom of God is here. We can live under this rule and reign of God right now. But it's not, there's still a Saul here. And outwardly, he has 
a lot going on. He seems to have all the trappings. He seems to have all the authority. He seems to be the one calling the shots. It seems to be him getting his way. And for us, if you've chosen, if you're a Christian, if you said, you know what, I'm following Jesus, it feels sometimes like you are living, you've moved out to the desert. You've moved into a cave. You've had to give up some stuff. These guys, they didn't have much. They were in distress and they were discontented and they were in debt. But for them to align themselves with David was a death sentence. What they were saying, if you're Saul, they're, they're being treasonous. They were picking somebody else. They were putting their ultimate loyal with, loyalty uh, somewhere else, not with you. It was a death sentence for every one of those guys. They chose to move out into the wilderness with him, to cast their lot with him, hitch their wagon to him, whatever you want to say. That's what it is for us. That's where we live. We live in this time where we have a king, and he's real, and he has power, and he has authority, and he has, he's God's man, just like David. But we're still living in this circumstance where we have an enemy who seems to have control, and that is the devil. And there's that tension for us. We live in this world where we know who our king is. Sometimes it doesn't appear that he wins. Sometimes we do feel like we're in the desert. We're out in the wilderness with him. How is that good news? Seems like it would be okay at best. How is that good news? This is Second Samuel 5. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. So Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel, um, I think it's 30, 31, something like that. He's in, a, he's in a battle, and he dies, and everybody starts rallying to David. Saul's removed. That's the obstacle to David really uh, taking over. He purposely has said, I'm not going to push my agenda. I'm staying back. When God wants me to be king, he'll put me in the chair. God removes Saul. He's killed in battle. David's elevated, and everybody rallies to him. And that those two verses we just read was his official public coronation. At that point, everyone in Israel says, he's our guy. If you read through, particularly 2 Samuel, you'll see that they're these, they're, out of these 400 guys that went to him originally, there's probably 30 of them that were always super tight with David. It's this weird group of people. You'll read their names. Their names don't even sound Jewish, a lot of them. They're these guys that flocked to him in the desert who picked him when nobody else were, was picking him. And they stayed close to him all the way through. And, and when, Jesus, when, when, when David finally has this public coronation, and everybody says, yes, you're the king, you're the king, there's this group who had already made the choice. That's If you read Revelation 19, Jesus is coming back on a white horse, and it, the Revelation says, the name on his thigh and on his robe is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to come back. His second coming, and when he does... That's his public coronation. That's when everybody's going to know. Paul says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Those who follow him and those who don't, none will be able to deny that he is the king because he's going to come back that way. And everybody is going to see it. And the thing for us to realize, again, wherever you are in terms of your relationship with Jesus, is when he comes back, it's too late to choose. At that point, your choice is solidified. Those guys that have gone to him in the desert, when he comes back as king, 
He's going to call you to Himself. Those of us who, if we don't do that, if we hedge our bets, if we say, you know what, I'm just not sure about this. I'm not sure you can follow Jesus in this world that we live in right now. If you hedge your bets, if you play both sides, if you don't choose for Him now, then when He comes back, you're out. It's too late at that point. It's not a scary thing. It's just the reality of what it's going to look like for us. We live in between these two comings of Jesus. The first one, when He comes and nobody recognizes, very few people recognize Him as a king. And the second one, when everybody's going to know He's a king. And in the interim, where we live, He's saying, whose rule are you going to live under? Whose reign are you going to live under? Are you going to follow me as your king? Or are you going to choose somebody else? The good news is that he has come and he's saying, come on in. Come now. What the Jews were expecting, they were expecting God to come back on one day. It was called the day of the Lord. Everything's bad and he's going to come and boom. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to restore Israel to the promised land and they're going to live under his authority. That's not what happened. Jesus came, and then we have this gap. At this point, it's 2,000 years. Who knows how long it's going to be before he comes again and does all of the stuff the Jews were anticipating. The good news is that in this interim time, we can enjoy some of the benefits of what happens when he comes back. We can be healed. We're still going to die, but we can be healed. We can have direction. We can be forgiven. We can live in relationship with God. We'll talk about this more when we get into Mark 4, but that's it for now. The kingdom of God. It's God's rule and God's reign. And right now it's tricky for us to see because the king, the one we follow, he's not publicly been declared king yet. That won't come until the second coming, which is too late for all of us to make a choice. We need to choose now. Am I going to go to him in the wilderness? Am I going to go to him in the desert and say, I'm your guy? So what do we do? What's the expectation? Repent. And believe the good news. To repent is to turn from wickedness, to turn from sin, and to turn towards righteousness. Remember we said last week, sin, it's not just sinful behavior. It's not just lying and cheating and stealing. It's any place where we miss the mark. So in terms of your identity, in terms of uh, where you get your security from, in terms of your purpose, in terms of your behavior, lifestyle, all of that. Any place where you're missing the mark, that's sin. And what Jesus says is you need to repent of that. You need to acknowledge, hey, this I'm missing the mark here and turn in the other direction and begin to move towards him. Believe. Put your trust in. That's active. Believe is not think in the Bible. It's not academic. It's not intellectual. Most of us, we can't explain the law of gravity. We're not physicists. We can't do that. We don't know the equations, and, but we believe it. We don't jump off the roof of our houses because we know what's going to happen if we do. That's what the Bible's talking about with believe. Put trust in, confidence in, shape your life around, put your weight on. That's what it means. That's what Jesus is saying. Not, not repent and think. Repent and shape your life around this truth that the kingdom of God has come to you. Shape your life around that. Bend what you're doing around that reality. Not can you answer the questions right on your Bible competency exam. Does your life reflect the fact that you're trusting Him? Two pictures of that, verses 16 through 20. Two pictures of what it looks like to enter into the kingdom of God, to become a Christian, to get saved, to inherit eternal life, whatever phrase you want to use. They all mean the same thing. Here's two two pictures. 
Jesus, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Jebet, son of Zebedee, excuse me, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and they followed him. There's a picture. Those are two pictures of what it looks like to enter into the kingdom of God, to become a Christian again, to inherit eternal life, to get saved, whatever phrase you want to use. This is what it looks like. So here's the bumper sticker. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Here's the response to that bumper sticker. Here's what he expects. A few things you can see. The first, it's an invitation to an ongoing relationship. This idea of following. It's not a one-time decision. People who study this say Jesus walked about 3,000 miles during the three years of his public ministry. So when he said to these four guys, follow me, he literally meant follow me. He's walking around every day. If they decided, if Peter decides on Monday, yeah, I'm going to follow you. And then on Tuesday, he doesn't re-up. Well, Jesus is gone because he's on the move. And over the course of a few days of not re-upping, eventually Jesus, he's out of eye, you can't find, he's out of eyesight at that point. He's gotten too far ahead. And the same thing is true for us. We don't see him with our eyes the way they, they do. We're led by the Spirit, but the, the, invitation slash demand is the same. Come, follow me. It's ongoing relationship. It's not a one-time commitment. It's not a one-time decision. That's great if you can show me in your Bible when you prayed the prayer. That's awesome. It's also on a lot of levels irrelevant. What are you doing today? Are you following? If you were baptized when you're 12 and you're 42, there's 30 years in there. He's, Jesus has been working. He's been moving. Have you been following Him for those 30 years? Are you leaning back on the decision that you made when you were a kid in Bible school? You can't do that. None of us can. The invitation, come and follow me. Ongoing relationship. For some of us, we've kind of lost that. Not, by, not intentionally. It's just circumstances have kind of happened and we've drifted and we've become apathetic and stuff has come up and sometimes you might like kind of you, you raise your head up out of your life and you can't find Jesus anymore. Thankfully, he closes that gap quick when we call. But if you're not making a regular, intentional, conscious decision, yes, I'm following you, then the default mode is I'm staying still. That's, that's how it is. It's inertia. Unless you commit regularly to following, you're standing still. And he's not. Again, not a, not a guilt thing. It's just a reality thing. Come and follow me. Invitation to ongoing relationship. Second thing, those guys had to leave major sources of security, identity, and purpose. Their family and their careers. In this world, that's what you had your family. Most of the rabbis said the greatest commandment is to honor your father and mother. And these guys are ditching that. They're ditching their dad to go follow Jesus. Their career, they were fishermen. It's what they did. It looks like James and John were pretty good at it. They had guys who were working for them, probably middle class, small business owners. They left that stuff to follow him. Those things are not sinful. Obviously, your family's not wicked, I don't think. Your career, most likely, is not wicked. But at some point, this, this choice for these guys was laid out. I'm on the move. If you guys are following me, 
you got to let this stuff go. You can't come back and fish on Tuesday because I'm not going to be here on Tuesday. I'm going to the next town. You can't stick with your dad because I'm moving to the next town. And so those guys had to make a choice. And at that point, those things which are not wicked, which are not evil, could become a sin. It could cause them to miss the mark because they're looking, holding on to family and career, which would cause them to not be able to follow. For all of us, at some point, we're going to have to make a similar choice. Maybe not career, maybe not family, but something where you get your, it'll be a source of identity, security, or purpose, and you're going to have to let go of it to follow him. And most likely, sorry, it's going to be something you really, really like. And it's not because he's being mean. It's because the stuff you don't like, you're more than willing to let go of. Those are the easy things. It's pretty easy to give God addictions that are killing you. You don't want that. You want him to take it away. Difficult to give him things that form the core of who you are. But that's who I, that's how people know me. They know me as an architect. If I'm not that, what? Or my family, that's, my family is my life. What am I supposed to do? I can't let go of that. Those type of things. I'm not asking you to turn your back on anybody or anything. I'm just saying at some point, very well could be the case. That he's going to say, follow me. And to follow him, you've got to let go of something. And it won't be a wicked something. It'll be a source of identity, security, or purpose. And you've got to make a call. This is a tangent. Most r- disciples pick their own rabbis. A lot of you have been to college. You know how you do that. You look at the classes and you see what fits. Some of you that like to stay up late, you look for anything after 12. You try to find a teacher who is easy or hard, depending on how seriously you take your education. You, who My roommate has the test for this guy, so I'm going to... You wouldn't cheat like that. So anyway, you do. You sign up. You pick your own teachers. They don't pick you. That's how it works. You decide who you want to follow. Jesus picks them. Flips it. He still does the same thing. For some of you, you disqualify yourself. You're back of the bus, stay outside, slip in under the radar kind of folks. You're just crossing your fingers and hoping you get in. That's not how he sees you at all. He's chosen you. As we go through Mark, you'll see really quickly, all the disciples are idiots. And it comes through. They're boneheaded from beginning to the end. And Jesus knew that going in. And he didn't care. He picked them anyway. He picked them over everybody else he had to choose from. And the same thing is true of us. He knows all of that stuff. He knows the areas where you're a moron. And it doesn't bother him. He knows what you've done, and it doesn't bother him. He knows your strengths and your weakness. He knows all of that stuff. And he picked you anyway. So stop saying, I'm not worthy. We all know that. Stop saying, I'm not good enough. We all know that too. And he chose you anyway. So allow that to free you up to follow him. Not at a distance. Not hanging out in the back. But close. As close as these 12 did. That's the invitation for you and for me. Come and follow me. Not a hundred yards behind me. As close to me as you'll get. That's the invitation from him. There's no barrier on his side. It's barriers that we put up that keep us away. That was a tangent. Back to this. Following him. Invitation to ongoing relationship. You're going to have to let go of some things, most likely good things, things that form a major source of security, identity, and purpose. Uh, But it's not just about letting go. There's also something that you get. And you see this pretty quickly. 
you were fishers of fish, I'm going to make you fishers of men. In our world, they figured out what their deal was. He said, here's the new thing for you. It's not just that you have to let go of stuff, although you do. I'm not going to leave you empty-handed. I'm going to give you something else, and it's actually something better. Catching fish is fine. Catching people is way better, way more significant. There's eternal fruit here versus just filling your stomach here. And the same thing is true for us. Whatever He asks you to let go of, it's only so He can give you something else. It's not so you can be empty-handed for long. He wants to give you the next thing, which actually will be the more significant thing, will be the more permanent thing, will be the thing that actually bears long-term fruits. What we talked about last week, the significance of our lives is based on us doing our deal, us cooperating with what God is doing in our life. And you see that here. It looks, it, it's, that those couldn't be easy conversations and easy decisions for these four guys. And Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He, it's right there. Mere them. Mere that. And immediately, he offers, here's, here's what you get in return. Here's what I'm offering to you. This is also a little bit off track. For some of us, we think that to follow Jesus means a radical break from the life that we've lived and the person that we've been. And that is true, I think, in a very small number of cases. My belief is that God's at work in all of our lives, whether we recognize it or not. We've all been created in His image, and He is actively trying to pull us into relationship with Him. And when we make a choice to follow Him, there will be some break. There will be some discontinuity. You're not going to catch fish anymore. But there's also going to be points of continuity. You're still going to fish. You're just going to fish for people. He just changed what they were going for, but they were still the same guys. And I think the same, that's true for most of us. For some of you, you look at, your, particularly if you began to follow Jesus as an adult, you look at everything you did up to that point and you say, that's all bad, that's all wicked, that's all, and you've totally closed the door on that. And, there's, and I would say that there are probably some elements where the door does need to be closed. There needs to be a break. But you are who you are. God created you in His image, so don't ditch that stuff as well. There's going to be some carryover into your life with Him. Anyway, and He expected a response. At once they left their nets and followed Him. Without delay, He called them. They left their father in, in, in the boat with the men and followed him. There's, a, there's an expectation there. There's an invitation. There's an offer. You say yes or you say no. If you say nothing, it's the same thing as saying no because he's moving. So if, if he's walking and he says, follow me, you saying nothing, it's the same thing as you saying no. Yes, you have some time to make a decision. No, you don't need to feel pressure. But at some point, that's the offer on the table. Yes or no, follow me or not. And he expects each of us to respond. We talked about this a couple of years ago. Some of y'all were here. Many of you weren't. So if we say over here is, this is God, and this over here is not. All of us are born oriented away from God. So I'm born with my back to Him. You can go back and read the Bible, and if you don't believe that, it's pretty quick that you do turn your back on Him. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. And so my back is to Him. And then over here... There's stuff that kind of allures me. It's I can get my security, my identity, and my purpose over here. Maybe from my family, maybe from my career, maybe from my bank account, maybe from my friends, maybe from success, maybe from popularity. It doesn't matter. None of the stuff is necessarily wicked or evil, 
It's just I have these, we all have this, these needs in our heart that need to be met for security and identity and purpose. And if my back is to God, then I'm not going to get them from Him. And so I'm, this is the direction that I'm looking. And so I start, most of us, we start walking in this direction. Again, most of us aren't walking away from God because we want to rob a bank or kill somebody. It's not these wicked behaviors that we're just saying, I can't wait. It's, that's not it. I can't wait to sin. For most of us, it's brokenness in my heart for whatever reason. And, ooh, there's a cure for the brokenness over here. I'm pretty good at this, whatever it is. I'm pretty good in school, and so I need to know who I am, so I'm going to grab onto that, and I'm going to become the smart guy. You know what? I make people laugh, and I'm pretty good at that, so I'm going to become the funny guy, or whatever it is. My family didn't have anything, and so I spent a lot of time worrying about food. So I'm going to be ultra successful, so I never have to worry about that again. Those things are okay. Being successful is not a sin. But when I'm looking to it to meet these deep needs in my heart, what it's doing is it's pulling me away from the Lord. And then many of us, we have some, there's something that happens in our life. We have some crisis, there's a tragedy, an aha moment, and we might find ourselves kind of backing up towards the Lord. We haven't turned, we're not looking at Him, but our hearts have been softened a little bit. Some of you maybe became Christians later in life, maybe you remember that. You kind of started, huh, you're maybe a little more open to spiritual things. Maybe you read um, uh, the Bible or uh, you talked to someone who's a Christian or something happened that caused you to kind of, and that's God wooing us. And this is the thing for us. It matters what direction we're walking in. It matters if I'm walking away from God and it matters if I'm walking to Him. However, or and, walking to Him, I'm, my back is still turned. I still haven't acknowledged my own sinfulness and my, I'm still, I'm closer than I was, but my back is still turned. At some point, I have to repent, which is conscious and intentional. Nobody repents accidentally. It's an acknowledgement. You know what? I've been looking in the wrong direction and now I'm going to turn and look in the right direction. That turning is repentance. Saying I'm looking in the wrong direction, that's not enough. You're halfway there. You've got to finish the turn. And now I'm looking in the right direction. It's a difference between having your back to the Lord and your face to the Lord. And that's a conscious, intentional decision. I would say it's a regular decision. It's not a one-time deal. You don't, most of us can't clean the slate in ten minutes at an altar. There's more brokenness in our hearts. There's more stuff that needs to be dealt with. And I'm not saying that you haven't turned and you're not a Christian. I'm saying that there's places where we don't miss where we're, where we're continue to miss the mark and I continue to have to acknowledge that before the Lord God I, I missed it here I told y'all last week coaching soccer pointed out to me hey I missed the mark in this area I needed to repent of that recognize you know what my identity is not found over here and how these little kids perform my identity is found over here and who you say that I am and so now I've turned and I'm facing him and, even, and so that's wonderful but even here there's still choices to be made. Am I going to trust? Am I going to walk towards Him? Am I going to follow Him? If I'm not making a regular conscious choice to do that, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm still looking in the right direction, but the pull of the world and the pull of my own selfishness and the pull of the devil is away. And so I wind up doing this. 
And this is not to scare. It's just reality. The farther I get, the easier it is to turn. I haven't turned yet. If I die, am I going to go to heaven? It's the wrong question. Yes, but it's the wrong question. The question is not how far away from Jesus can I get and still be on the team. Right? How close can I get? I'm walking in the wrong direction here. For most, some of you, this is where you want to be. You want to keep Him within earshot, so if you need Him, you can yell. But you don't want to be so close that He might send you to Panama and you've got to live in a hut. And that's the, that's the gap that you're trying to bridge. That gets down to an issue of trust. Do you, do I, do we trust Him enough to let Him run our life? We said last week, many of us trust Him with our souls. We just don't trust Him with our lives. And so we're playing this game of where I'm going to follow you in this area and not in this area. I'm going to obey you here and not here. I'm going to keep you close, but not too close. Either He's the King or He's not. You don't get to choose. I don't get to choose. If, if you're one who tends to... You're backing up. That's an issue of trust. and You need to ask yourself, why? Why don't I trust Him? What causes me in this area of my life to keep Him out here? And you begin to wrestle through that. Two questions and we're closing. One, what direction are you facing? Are you looking at Him or are you looking the other way? Straight up. Don't lie. Which way are you looking? Don't get into all this once saved, always saved. Don't get into that. Those are rabbit trails. What direction are you facing on October 31st, 2010? And if you don't like the direction you're facing, then let's fix it. And the way you fix it is to repent, to acknowledge you've been looking in the wrong way, and now you're going to turn and start looking towards Him again. Second question, what direction are you walking? Are you walking towards Him, or are you walking away from Him? If you're walking away, how come? What is it that causes you, or what is it in you that keeps you from trusting Him enough to follow Him in every area of your life. Let's pray. God, we do thank You for this invitation to live under Your reign and under Your rule. And to be honest, I don't get that a lot of times. I don't know that we get that a lot of times, how that's good news. But it is. You said it was. And so, a couple of things. One, I pray that we would get Your kingdom, that we would understand what it means for Your kingdom to come to Marietta, to Cobb County, to our houses, to our places of business, to our own lives. We would understand what does that look like to live under your rule and under your reign on a daily basis. God, I pray if there's any in this room who've never turned, who've never intentionally said, I'm I'm with you. I'm following you. God, I pray today would be the day that not because I said it, but because they would hear you calling them home. If they're lost sheep who've wandered away, they would know this shepherd who is pursuing them, if they're lost children who have run away, God, that they would come home to Your open arms. If they're lost coins, they feel forgotten, that they would know the joy of being picked up again. God, for those of us who we're turning and we're looking at You, but we're about as close as we want to get. God, I pray that You would, one, show us why. Show us what the brokenness in our own heart is that keeps us from trusting You as a loving Father. And then, God, I pray for grace to get through that, 
to begin to take steps of trust. I'm going to be up here. We'll have some other guys up here. If you want prayer, you can come see us. You can come kneel here on this first row of chairs and we'll leave you alone. If you're having a trust problem, we're not going to fix it in 10 seconds. This is what I would encourage you to do. First, acknowledge, God, I don't trust you in whatever area of life it is. And, and then, if you're willing, say, but, but I want to. And just let Him take it from there. If you'll, if you'll acknowledge that you don't and tell Him that you want to, I think you'll be surprised at how it will begin to work in your heart. Make it easier for you to trust Him. You guys can stand up. Uh, we'll close with worship. But we'll come